You're listening to the SSPX podcast. This is a series of conferences given by Father Thomas Asher of the Society of St. Pius X on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to be seen as a private retreat, a retreat that you can do while you're sheltering in place or at your house, perhaps with some extra time. For all of our conferences, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now here's Father Asher. The Wedding at Cana, John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the marriage. And the wine failing, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what is that to me and to thee? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the waiters, Whatsoever he shall say to you, do ye. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three measures apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Draw out now, and carry to the chief steward of the feast, and they carried it. And when the chief steward had tasted the water, made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the waiters knew who had drawn the water, the chief steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at first sets forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they remained there not many days. Verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And the third day. This refers to the third day after the calling of the apostles. Remember we said that Jesus, after his 40 days in the desert, he goes back to the Jordan so that John can bear witness to him. He begins to call these apostles, and once he has done that, of course, then he goes with them to this marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Now, the first thing we might comment on beyond this is that our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, he goes from the desert, you know, directly, quasi, you know, within the week, he goes from the desert and his austerities to a feast, to to a grand feast. And these wedding feasts in the Old Testament would sometimes last as long as a week or or even more. And so we, too, during um, our time here on earth, we are in a veil of tears. It is a, a time of austerity, and yet we are meant to go from this veil of tears into heaven, into the promised land, as our as our Lord here goes from, again, from the desert to the feast. It's a beautiful um, incident in the life of our Lord, his going to Cana, of course, the miracle that's going to follow, the first of his miracles, and the establishment, as the church teaches, of the sacrament of matrimony, the restoration of matrimony to its its primitive uh, institution, the idea of it being one man and one woman, as it was from the beginning. This original truth had been lost over time, and men had been permitted, even even among the chosen people, to take multiple wives. They'd also been allowed um, to give their their wife a, a bill of divorce. And yet our Lord makes it clear that this was not how it was supposed to be. And our Lord makes it clear that... Um, moving forward, that there is to be no divorce. Um, this was something that, again, was allowed in the Old Testament to prevent the greater evil of a, of a husband or, or a wife, I suppose, from murdering their spouse. 
But in the New Testament, spouses are going to be held to a, to a higher standard, a, a mutual love that is symbolic of the love of Christ and uh, for the church. And the union of, of spouses being a symbol, again, of the union of Christ with his mystical body, the church. And as husbands and wives, um, that love that they have is meant to be fruitful, begetting souls for heaven. So the union of Christ in his church is meant to to beget children um, that are meant to be heirs to heaven. Our Lord blesses this marriage feast with his presence, and we can maybe stop and reflect of the importance of being married in the church so as to include Jesus and Mary um, in our lives from the very beginning. Um, in preparing couples for marriage, we, you know, the priest often remind them of this importance and also remind them of the importance of when planning their receptions to make sure their reception is somewhere where Mary and, and Jesus would be welcome. We, uh, we see too often, you know, this, this sort of pagan atmosphere in otherwise, you know, uh, good Catholic weddings. And so, again, let's, uh, in planning, make sure that Mary and Jesus would be comfortable in our dress, in our speech, in our behavior, etc. Verse 2, And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the marriage. Now, it's clear that, that Mary is invited. She's most likely a widow um, by now, since there's no further mention of Joseph in the Gospels. And one can't help but wonder if maybe one of the reasons why they end up running out of wine is because of Peter and the apostles and disciples that, that come in the wake of our Lord. Now, there's a lesson there maybe for us uh, to reflect upon is when we are a guest um, in someone's home. Um, we have to be careful about putting um, undue burdens upon them. Obviously, we are received, we are uh, welcomed, but let us be careful when we, when we request something to stop and consider what, what burdens we might be placing upon them by our request. Verse 3, And the wine failing, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, we've heard probably many times in sermons how this wine is a symbol of charity, um, the charity, which at the time that a couple is married, um, is obviously very, very abundant. Um, each one is really vying with the other very often, certainly in, in courtship, to demonstrate their love for the other person by their sacrifice, by their service, by their, their kindness and, and respect. And yet over time, um, the charity can run out or, or, or at least begin to wane. And various preachers at many times have have encouraged couples then that when we see this, um, at least the sensible presence of charity begin to decline, that we need to run to our Blessed Mother. We can say that this is true in, in marriage, but even also in, in other relationships, in the religious life, maybe, you know, a monk or a nun or a sister or whatever. At the beginning of their religious life, there's a, there's a great deal of fervor, a great deal of consolation, and yet that can begin to decline or maybe a priest in his priesthood, whatever it might be. In all of these cases, um, we certainly don't jump ship, we certainly don't bail out, but we go to our Blessed Mother and we, we, we manifest to her our want of charity, our want of, of wine, you know, which is, is, is the, uh, the symbol of charity, as we said, and we listen to her instructions, which we will get to in just a moment. Now, Mary was not ignorant of Christ's power, nor when he had decided to manifest himself. Remember, he has set out from home. He's done his 40 days of preparation in the desert. He's been baptized. He's chosen his followers. And we can imagine that now our Lord is only awaiting her word, so to speak, to begin his public ministry. 
Um, she certainly would not have forced him or gone against his will. Uh, notice that she simply informs him of the situation. She doesn't ask for a miracle. Um, she manifests that, hey, they have no wine. And our Lord could have very easily maybe told Matthew or Judas, who holds the purse, hey, run down to the, run down to the corner and, uh, and pick up you know, some more wine. She manifests the difficulty, but she leaves it to him as to how he's going to solve it. She informs him. Now, perhaps um, she does this because she, she recalls that, that many times in the past, um, her ideas didn't always coincide with his, you know, the loss in the temple or, you know, the manifestation of the will of God through the events of life. We're told again and again that she's been pondering these things in her heart. Um, and so she doesn't, um, you know, remonstrate with him. She simply informs him of the, of the need. And so too, you know, maybe that's a, a good lesson or a good thing for us to reflect upon that when, um, we have difficulties in our life, we don't tell God how to fix them. God, you need to, you need to get rid of this person out of my life because they're annoying or God, you need to, you know, get me a raise or get me a better job or do this or do that. We simply manifest the difficulties that we're having, whether it's some virtue that we're striving to practice or, or what have you, and leave it to him to decide how he is going to fix it. The same can be said when we're dealing with our superiors. We don't tell them um, what we want or how, how they should be managing us or whatever. We don't tell them what they must do. But we, we can, and we certainly we should, manifest our problems or difficulties, and then again, leave to them the solution of them. We see clearly um, in this episode, obviously, the, the care and the solicitude that Mary has. She doesn't wait for the, you know, the bride or groom to come and cry on her shoulder. She sees, and she's, she's proactive in her, in her response. I mean, she sees that the wine is running low. She doubtless has... Uh, you know, inquired, and when she sees that, in fact, they have nothing, well, then she goes to our Lord and, again, manifests this this want or this, this need. And we're going to see, obviously, by our Lord's response, the power of Mary's intercession. I mean, God has commanded us to honor our mother and father, to obey our mother and father. And so when Our Lady, again, never going against the will of God, but when she wants something, um, certainly, um, our Lord is going to listen to her request, and he's going to, to act upon them. So, as I, I often say, we don't go to Our Lady to try and get around our Lord, because we're going to see later, Mary makes it very clear, look, you do what he, sell, you do what he tells you. You know, it's not like I can, I can go to mom because dad told me no, and mom will give me what I want. That's not how it works. Now, verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what is that to me and to thee? My hour is not yet come. Now, at first uh, reading, this almost sounds like a kind of indifference or even a kind of rebuke. But in the Old Testament, this title of, of woman, it was a, a term of respect. It also, no doubt, our Lord uses this term um, out of uh, a reference, let's say, to the first woman, Eve. Remember, it was she who, um, through her disobedience, that led to Adam's disobedience and the fall of man. So too, Our Lady's um, obedience to the will of God with her accepting um, of the, the miracle or the, the mystery of the incarnation, accepting to conceive our Lord through her obedience to God's will, that is what leads to the obedience of our Lord um, by whom we are redeemed. 
our Lord is called in the, the New Testament, he's called the new Adam. And of course, um, this new Adam in the New Testament, there is a new Eve that is his helpmate, so to speak, and companion. Now, he asked the question, what is that to us? Now, he, we might see in this um, our Lord um, telling Our Lady, you need to stop and you need to reflect. Are you sure that you want me to do this? Now, you know where this is going to lead. Um, I hurt you once, you know, our Lord might be uh, trying to remind her, I hurt you once already by my separation. Um, we don't have to do this. We don't have to start this. This could all play out in a different way. You know, maybe I could, I could come and I could live at home for another five or 10 years and I could train these apostles, you know, before we begin our public ministry. But once I manifest my power, you know that this is going to lead to Calvary and you know that that sword of sorrow is going to pierce your heart. My hour has not yet come until you, you bid me leave to begin it. Now, are you sure you want me to do this? If this is too much, Mother, our Father won't ask it of you. You know, our Lord in the in the in the garden would pray, Father, let this chalice pass me by. All right, our, our Lord is effectively telling Our Lady right now, you can let this chalice pass by. This is how we should view this. It's it's anything but a rebuke. Now let's look at Our Lady's response. What does she say? Verse five. His mother said to the waiters, Whatsoever he shall say to you, do ye. This is effectively Our Lady saying, not my will, but thine be done. She's not demanding anything. She's leaving it up to our Lord. If you want to start, and I know that you're, you're longing to do this. Remember our, our Lord at the, the Paschal Feast, you know, with, with, with desire, I have desired to eat this Pasch. Our Lord is longing to complete this mission and, and work man's redemption. And Our Lady's not going to stand in his way. Notice, too, that she speaks to the waiters. She doesn't speak to our Lord. She doesn't speak to the disciples. We could see in this that she's speaking to each and every one of us. You do whatever he tells you. And again, she leaves the way open um, to Christ in a way. Our Lord, as I said before, he could have told the waiters, okay, go with Judas. Um, you can help carry back the bottles of wine. <laughs> you know, it wasn't... Um, something that she was demanding, but, but she makes her wish known. She doesn't specify how to, how to solve the dilemma or solve the problem. She leaves him open to work. And again, as a, we can't emphasize enough that Mary tells us, you know, do whatever he tells you. And of course, the will of God is manifested through the, through the laws of the church, through the will of our superior. Um, again, we don't go to her to try and get around Christ. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three measures apiece. We might ask, why doesn't our Lord just refill the empty wine bottles or the empty wineskins? Why does he choose the water pots? Well, firstly, to um, undermine you know, the claims of the modernists that our Lord somehow just diluted the wine that was left um, in order to stretch or increase the quantity. It's very clear. They are out of wine. There is nothing. Um, and so he uses something that, that never had wine in it. He has them fill them with water. Also, we can say that our Lord chooses to use the water pots rather than the, the wine skins or whatever, because he's very generous. He's not going to skimp. These pots that are filled contain roughly 120 gallons of wine. That's, that's 500 liters or over 600 bottles of wine, if you, you know, went to the store and bought a bottle of wine. Our Lord is 
incredibly generous in his in his gifts. We can note as well that our Lord waits until it's completely gone so that it is clearly a miracle. And we might say that in our lives, um, so too with us, he often lets us go to the point of falling on our face or, you know, hitting rock bottom before he intervenes so that we know that it's him, um, according to him and his power and not our own uh, talents or whatever else that are our salvation. Verse seven, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. So we see here an example of the command of our Lord and an exact obedience. They fill them right up to the to the very brim. It isn't a half-hearted fulfill, fulfillment of Christ's uh, law or message or will, but it is a perfect obedience, going going above and beyond for even what is what is clearly asked. Verse eight. And Jesus said to them, "Draw out now and carry to the chief steward of the feast." And they carried it. Now let us note here the immediacy of the miracle. They, the pots are filled, and, and it's not like, okay, yep, now let's wait a half hour while the, uh, I don't know, the flavor or the, you know, the taste of the pots you know, permeates the water, and maybe people will think it's wine. But it's filled up, and immediately they draw it out, and they don't serve the guests directly, but rather they take it to the chief steward in order to show, again, to prove that it isn't simply watered-down wine or some some other nonsense, according as the modernists would have us believe. Verse 9, And when the chief steward had tasted the water made wine and knew not whence it was, but the waiters knew who had drawn it, the chief steward called the bridegroom. Now, this chief steward, he's a, a I forget what the term is, solemnier or a, whatever they whatever they call them nowadays. He's, a, he's an ancient wine snob. And he doesn't know Christ, and he doesn't know where this this uh, this liquid that he's been served. He doesn't know where it's come from. So he is an independent witness. It's an independent testimony to Christ's power. Now he's going to testify that this wine, in fact, is better than anything that went before. And we were talking earlier at the at the start of this conference about how. Um, the kind of love that a man and a woman have in the early days of their marriage, it's, it's, it's very, um, very powerful. It's very strong. Obviously, it's very sensible. And yet, that, that um, kind of love, that romantic love and the, and the physicality of it, that can wane over time. And in a way, it's not, it's not bad if it does. I've even uh, you know, read um, some authors who say that it even has to die out, it has to go away, in order to give place to a better love, a deeper love, uh, a richer love. There's a beautiful story I heard about Colonel John Ripley, who's a famous Marine in Vietnam, an incredibly heroic man, really a man's man, and his wife um, was a convert, and he truly loved his wife. And you see pictures of them as a young couple, and you can tell he is... He's very proud of this, this, this beautiful woman on his arm. And we can imagine them, you know, when they were first married and, 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 and John saying, man, you know, I really love that girl. And of course, you know that he does. But the story that I heard was from, from Dr. David Allen White, who knew um, Colonel Ripley from the, the Naval Academy. And he told the story that years later, that when, when the colonel was, was teaching, he was head of English at the Naval Academy, that the colonel, um, would show up for these big, 
you know, dress uh, balls, you know, that they would have. And, and all of the officers would show up in their uniforms with the gold braid and the fruit salad on their chests and their medals and whatnot. And the women would all be in their evening gowns and whatnot. Um, but by this time, his wife, Moline, she was suffering from, from dementia, as, as I understood it, and she was confined to a wheelchair. And he said that, that John, nevertheless, Colonel Ripley, would show up at the, at the ball and he would be pushing Moline in, in, in the wheelchair and she would have on, you know, a beautiful gown like every other woman there. Her hair would be prepared. And he said through the night, as the night wore on, you would see people over here dancing or people over here um, um, having drinks or laughing in conversation. And he said, and you'd look over, you know, in the other direction over here in this corner and you'd see John and he would be feeding his wife. You know, he'd have a piece of cake or some food from the banquet and he, and he would be tenderly over there caring for her and feeding her. And if And if he were to tell me, you know, Father, I really love that woman. I would believe the older John Ripley much more readily than I would believe the younger John Ripley. Because in the in the case of the young man, well, yes, he loves his wife, but he gets a great deal in return. And yet when a man is older and his and his wife is is maybe has lost some of the the luster and the shine of her youth, um and maybe she's even even uh, as I say handicapped in a certain way and he has to care for her. That's where we really see the true love. Love is, remember, it's, it's, the, it's the desire for the good of the other person. And when we, when we act in that way, when we, when we work for the good of the other person, not getting anything in return, that is a much purer and a much truer love than the flashier love of our youth. And so in verse 10, the chief steward, he goes to the bridegroom, verse 10, and said to him, Every man at first sets forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. What fantastic wine that must have been. And we know that whatever God does, it's always done well. And whatever he does for us, we know that it is always for our best, even if maybe in our human eyes it doesn't always appear so. He saves the best for last. He saves the the best for now, we might even say, these wretched days in which we're living, and I don't just mean these, this COVID-19 crisis, I just mean the, the wretchedness of the modern age. There was a saint who said, made it clear, that the saints of the latter days will be some of the greatest in the history of the church. Great crises, great difficulties, great temptations, they all present great opportunities for us to really prove our love for God. Verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, this miracle, like all the miracles that our Lord is going to work um, during his time on earth, each miracle, remember, is meant to be a proof of his divine power. And if we talk about this miracle in particular, um, we see some parallels um, throughout through the Old Testament. We remember how Moses turned water um, into blood, remember, in order to um, one of the one of the plagues to help convince Pharaoh to free the children of Israel, the Hebrews of old, um, from their slavery in Egypt. Later, our Lord here at Cana, he turns water now into wine. Moses had turned it into blood. Our Lord turned water into wine. But then later he's going to turn um, wine into blood, as he will at the at the 
Last Supper um, with the institution of the Mass. And then later, um, the next day, let's say, on the cross, the blood and water are going to be poured out again when he when his side is pierced. And of course, this blood and water is what's going to free us from, from the slavery of sin and, and lead us into the promised land of heaven if we, if we follow our Lord, if we take advantage of the graces offered. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they remained there not many days. Now, as we mentioned before, notice that the gospel says nothing about about St. Joseph. Um, It is most likely, uh, as we said before, because Joseph has has died by this time. He is um, out of our Lord and Our Lady's life. Um, Our our Lord is the provider now for for his blessed mother. And we'll we'll, we'll see that when we get to Calvary, how he's going to pass her on to St. John and through John to us. But I wanted just to note here in this last verse um, how they remain there not many days hence. And so by the um, permission, if you want to call it that, of Our Lady, our Lord, through this miracle, he has begun the road to Calvary. He has begun his public ministry. We see that it was by this miracle that the disciples believed in him, as we saw in verse 11. And now they go back with her to Capernaum with uh, some of his relatives, the, the brethren, so to speak, and obviously not, not brothers and sisters, but, but his brethren, his close relations. And he has some time there at home with his family and friends. But notice that it's a very short honeymoon, so to speak. Um, he immediately starts out on the apostolate after, after a very short time. It is time to get to work. It is time to, to save men. So, let us learn from that. I mean, not to, let's say, be overly indulgent in our feasting or in our, our rest, our vacations, but remember the work that God has given us to do, whatever our duties of state are, remembering that those are always the manifestation of God's will for us, and to obviously pour ourselves into that work um, for the love of God, doing these things for the love of God and in union with him. Now, one final point that I just wanted to make, and I'll I'll mention it again later, but back in verse, what was it? Verse uh, verse four, our Lord addressed our Blessed Mother as woman. And I want to just mention it here. We'll mention it again in in a later conference. But notice that um, here at the beginning of our Lord's ministry, he addresses his Blessed Mother as woman. And when will he do that again? But at the end of his ministry, when he's hanging on the cross, when he is there on Calvary and looking upon her, he says, woman, behold thy son. It's funny, or it's just, it's, it's worth pondering in our hearts that our Lord uses this term for his blessed mother at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And, and again, I will say that this title of woman is applied to our blessed mother because as we said before, she is this new Eve that is cooperating in our redemption. I think it was St. Louis uh, Grignon de Montfort who said that just as the actions of Eve had far-reaching spiritual consequences leading to the downfall of men, so the actions of our Blessed Mother, they have far-reaching spiritual uh, consequences. You know, again, through through her obedience, we have Christ's obedience. So, a lot to think about. A beautiful, beautiful incident here. We see very much the love of God the kindness of God, the tenderness and solicitude of of our Lord for us. So take care and God bless you.